So anyway, I love this morning and uh, just pray that I'll keep things entertaining and exciting enough for the adults to stay awake and the kids to be entertained. Uh, that's my prayer. <laughs> Actually, it's a little more than that, but that's part of it. Um, it it's, I love being here at the, be, the end of 2017 and the beginning of 2018 because as has already been referenced, you know, this is a time when we start to think about our lives. I mean, hopefully we've been thinking about them all through the year, but we start to reflect on what's really important. Like, what matters? What, what makes a difference? And, and so we're going to look at Psalm 130 this morning to, to think about one of the things that is the most important to think about in the midst of our very busy lives with so much to do. We just want to take time and remember what's most important. This is most important. The title of the message is, With You, There Is forgiveness. I've been a Christian for 45 years, and this topic of forgiveness is more amazing to me now than it ever was. I was raised a Roman Catholic and uh, always thought I had to earn my way in. And to discover, to have God reveal what I'm going to be sharing this morning, what we're going to be meditating on this morning, it's never lost its wonder. It only becomes more amazing, and it should become more uh, amazing because the reality is a lot of people walk around with this feeling of guilt. We just feel guilty. We feel like we're not measuring up, especially in this area, especially in the D.C. area. It's just you got to do, you got to achieve, you got to accomplish, and, and we, just, we just feel like we're not quite getting it all done. As a mom, you might feel that. As an as a employee or an employer, you can feel that. As a student, you can feel that. As a child, you can feel that. I just, I'm just, you just walk around with this guilty feeling. And so what do we do with that guilty feeling? It's this weight. It's this burden that we carry around. Just like uh, Christian in, in Pilgrim's Progress got this weight on his back, this guilt, this burden. Well, how do we handle it? Well, in preparing for this message, I went to the internet, which is the source of all things true and reliable, and I found this article, Six Ways to Lighten the Weight of Guilt. I got it from the Huffington Post, which is the, the premier reliable source. Six Ways to Lighten the Weight of Guilt. Here you go. One, indulge in a good laugh, which we just did. You should feel less guilty now. Two, toss it out, scribble it on a piece of paper and throw it away. <laughs> it's so easy. I love this. Or talk it out. Just vent. Just say what you feel. That always accomplishes great things. Uh, four, show a little kindness to others and especially to yourself. <laughs> I never think I'm as kind to myself as I need to be. Number five, tackle your tasks. Nike says just do it. Number six, channel your feelings into something positive. Adopting an optimistic mentality can also boost your mood, making you feel happier and lighter overall. All it takes is a little shift in your outlook. Actually, dealing with guilt takes more than just a little shift in your outlook. It needs to take more than just a little shift. It takes a massive shift because we're so used to looking at things from our perspective. And we find that massive shift of outlook, not surprisingly, in God's Word. Because when we turn to God's Word, we leave what we think and we move into what God thinks. And that's why it's such a change in our perspective. So in Psalm 130, we're going to learn about what God thinks about how we should deal with our guilt. Psalm 130 is one of the 15 songs of ascent 
Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And these are, these are poems, these are songs that the Jews would sing as they were going to Jerusalem on one of the three annual feasts written about in Deuteronomy 16, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And the, the journeys ended in Jerusalem, and on the way they would sing these songs to help them remember and reflect. And so this is 130, the last one is 134. As they're approaching Jerusalem, they're starting to be aware they're going to be in the presence of God. So they're starting to think, am I fit for that? Am I ready for that? And so that's where this comes from. This psalm teaches us God's way of lightening the weight of our guilt. And when I was going to sum up the big idea of this psalm, it'd be this. Those who hope in God for forgiveness now can anticipate the day when sin and all its effects will be no more. (laughs) I'm going to say that again because it's so good. Those who hope in God for forgiveness now can anticipate the day when sin and all its effects will be no more. Too many of us talk about forgiveness. We hear messages on forgiveness. We sing songs about forgiveness, but we don't live in the good of forgiveness. We don't act like people who are forgiven. You know, people who know they're forgiven act differently, they're happier. They're kinder, they're wiser, they're humbler. We don't always act like that because we don't realize what forgiveness means. So my prayer is that by the end of this time, we will better understand and appreciate what it means that with you there is forgiveness. Because to not live in the good of forgiveness robs us of one of the greatest, probably the greatest means of joy, assurance, and transformation that God has provided for those he loves. So let's dig in. I'm going to read Psalm 130. This is the word of God, not my words. This is God's word, a song of ascents. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Be attentive. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. This psalm divides neatly into four sections of two verses each. They each begin with a C. I like alliteration. It helps me remember things. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to see the condition of the psalmist. And if you're one of the young people following along... 
It might help you just to make a mark. If you have a paper, I guess you can use the sheets we were singing from. Mark down every time I say the word forgiveness. Just to see how important forgiveness is in the eyes of God. You can start that now. So, verses 1 and 2. The condition of the psalmist. This is the condition. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord! He's not doing so well. That's what we learned from the beginning. He's in the pits. He's in the valley. Why is he so down? What's the problem? Well, the psalm right before this one, Psalm 129, he's talking about his enemies, those who have opposed him from his youth, those who are against him, those who hate God's people. That would certainly put you in the depths. So maybe that's why he's in the depths. We're not quite sure yet. Whatever the reason, he's crying out to the Lord from the depths. And he says, O Lord, verse 2, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Notice where he goes when he's feeling in the depths. He doesn't turn inward. He doesn't play games. He doesn't go shopping. He doesn't pig out on chocolate. He doesn't isolate himself and just despair. He cries out to God. That's what he does. He cries out to God. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. It's the best thing we can do, and that's often the last thing we think of. It's the best thing we can do, cry out to God. It's often the last thing we think of. But what it means is this. No matter how deep our valley is, we are never out of earshot of the throne of mercy. Never. Mercy That's what he's crying out for. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. Mercy, by its very definition, it's it's a word we hear a lot. What it means is favor that we don't deserve. It's someone being nice to us when we don't really deserve it. And when we didn't earn it. That happens to me a lot in my life. My wife has been incredibly merciful to me for 41 years. Giving me favor I don't deserve. He's crying out to God for mercy. That's because he knows he needs God's help. He knows he's not going to get through this on his own. And to know you need God's help is the best place we can be when we're in the pits. We're in the depths. So that's his condition. Verses 3 and 4. What's the cause of his condition? Why is he feeling so bad? Well, Whatever situation that caused him to cry out for, his, for mercy, he's aware of a bigger problem now. And that bigger problem is the depths of his guilt before God. So in verse 3, he says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, big word for sin, sins, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He's just realizing, wow, if, if the Lord marks iniquities, I'm toast. I have no way. I'm doomed. Now, think about it for a moment. We are often the ones who like to mark iniquities. We live in a culture of people, and we're included in that, who love to mark iniquities. We love to point out the faults of everyone around us, and we love to be the first to do it. That's what Facebook is for and Twitter. We find the right sin some sin we think we're not guilty of, and then we tell everyone else how wrong it is. 
That person talks too much. That person overeats. That person's lying. That person's immoral. That person steals. And when we mark iniquities, guess what? We can stay standing. And that's what we want people to see. Everyone else is wrong. We are right. And we, so we, we post our thoughts on Twitter and Facebook and boycotts and comment sections and letters to the editor. Here's our problem. We aren't the ultimate judge of what sin is. God is. And when we talk about how bad everybody else's sins are, our own sins are strangely hidden from us. We can't see them. We don't see them. And the truth is, as the psalmist says, the Lord does mark iniquities. He keeps a record of iniquities. Hebrews chapter 4, a book in the New Testament, verse 13 says this, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Lord does mark iniquities. The psalmist realizes he needs to be forgiven, like we so often fail to do. And if the Lord marks our iniquities, we're doomed. Because unlike our culture, God's judgment is sure, his standard is perfection, and his discernment is never wrong. (laughs) How unlike our culture. How unlike us. So God sees and marks murder and rape and incest and terrorism and drunkenness and homosexuality and abortion. He keeps a record of every act of racism. Viewing pornography, sensuality, anger, slander, gossip, obscene talk. He sees impatience and pride and envy and sloth and coveting and overeating and self-centeredness and materialism. He sees every time we disobey our parents, every time we get angry at our brothers and sisters, every time we lie to our teachers. God takes note of every time We fail to love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or to love our neighbors as ourselves. He sees everyone. (laughs) So who can stand? And there are many sins I didn't even mention. (laughs) If you think, yeah, yeah, that's not me, that's not me. Well, you're deceived first. That's your first problem. There are sins I haven't even mentioned that God sees. No one can stand. Romans 3 verse 20 says, Every mouth will be stopped. No more excuses. No more. Well, the reason I did that was... Every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. We have to come to that realization before verse 4 makes any sense. Because when he gets to verse 4, he says this. But with you, there is forgiveness. That you may be feared. 
Forgiveness can seem so common to us. We've already sung songs about it. We've heard the word of God. Devin explained it clearly. Yeah, I know forgiveness. I got forgiveness. Good, good. I'm good to go on forgiveness. We can almost start to assume God should be forgiving. Like, as one person said, that's his job. Like, that's what God does. He forgives. But the fact that God forgives sins should amaze us. It should stun us. It should astound us. It should be so incredible that we just walk away in disbelief. Go, oh, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Last year, I read John Owen's commentary on Psalm 130. It's in volume six of his complete works. And I'm praising God that this Christmas, my sons gave me the complete set of John Owen's works. I just am like a kid in a candy store. Because all I have is volume six, but I read it, and it was his commentary on Psalm 130, and he spends uh, 222 pages on verse four. Yeah, that's what I said. It's like, are you kidding? Just 70% of his commentary on Psalm 130 is on this verse. So I learned some things about forgiveness that I wasn't quite clear on. So I'm going to share some of them with you. And this is one of them. Uh, forgiveness should astound us. There is nothing outside of a direct message from God that leads us to believe that God is forgiving. Think of the angels before God created the world. First Peter 2, 4, 2 Peter 2, 4 says that when the angels sinned, he didn't forgive them. There goes a bunch of angels worshiping God in heaven, and then a bunch of them decided, no, we can, we're, we're as good as God, and he condemned them. There was no second chance. It wasn't like, well, I'm going to send a redeemer. No, he didn't. You look at creation. Think about creation. Nothing in the natural creation points to God being forgiving. Right? Look, look at this beautiful sky. It's kind of gray right now, but it's still beautiful. It shows God's powerful. It shows he's creative. It shows he's lavish generous doesn't show he's forgiving how would you know he's forgiving think about adam and eve right when they sinned adam and eve didn't just kind of hang around going it's no problem god will forgive us what did they do what did they do Corey? do you know what they did when they sinned after they sinned Did they go run to God? What did they do? They hid. Yes, they hid. No, they didn't think God was going to be forgiving. They didn't expect it. What was the sign that God would be forgiving? Genesis 3.15. God says this to the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. I will put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first hint that God is going to be forgiving. Adam and Eve's disobedience and rejection of God's love, their following after Satan, would somehow be overcome and God's plan would be restored. And in an astounding act of mercy, God clothes Adam and Eve in animal skins. Well, maybe he is going to be forgiving, but we wouldn't have known otherwise unless he showed us himself. 
And so he established a sacrificial system where people would come, they'd sin before God, they would come, they'd bring animals and offerings, and the priests would receive them, and they would burn these offerings, these animals, in place of the people. The animals received judgment in place of the people to pay for the sins so that God could forgive them. And so when the psalmist says, with you there is forgiveness, maybe he's thinking of those sacrifices. Maybe he's thinking of passages like Leviticus chapters 4 through 6 where we read this refrain or some form of this refrain nine times. And the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven. And maybe he's remembering in that, saying, yes, with you there is forgiveness. Because of the sacrificial system, I know with God there is forgiveness. But why? Why does he forgive? That's the end of verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That you may be feared? Shouldn't it be like that you may be worshipped? Or that you may be loved? That you may be feared? Yes, feared. That's the right word. (laughs) Understanding how many and how great our offenses against God are should cause us to fear a God that is so gracious and so merciful, and so compassionate, and so loving. Forgiveness leads us to God, not away from Him. Forgiveness doesn't make us think, hey, we can do whatever we want. Forgiveness makes us think, I never want to disobey a God like that. It makes us revere Him not disregard him. And I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century, I'm sure he was, um, in England, in writing on the power of forgiveness, says this. A man who has been forgiven is afraid that he should go and sin again after such love and such mercy. He is melted down by the goodness of the Lord. He does not know what to make of it. For a time, he, he can hardly believe that it is true. I know that when I was converted, converted, I felt at first like Peter when the great iron gate was opened and the angel brought him out of prison. He knew not what was done to him by the angel and he thought he saw a vision. He could not believe it to be true that he was really released. So it is with a saved sinner. You are so amazed. You are so overwhelmed (laughs) that you are filled with fear at the intense delight of pardon, being half afraid that it cannot really be true that such a wretch as you can have been pardoned and that all your iniquities are blotted out forever. The wondrous grace of God makes you tremble with a holy, reverential fear. Amen. Too often, we fail to see God as holy enough to hate our sin, or good enough to forgive it. We go back and forth. We don't see Him as holy enough to hate our sin, and then once we do sin, we don't see Him as good enough to forgive it. This verse keeps them both together. With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So we've seen the psalmist's condition. We've seen the cause of his condition. And out of this realization that with God there is forgiveness, he makes a commitment. That's a third C. He makes a commitment. The psalmist knows in a limited way that with God there is forgiveness, but 
He's still in the depths. There's still something going on. He's fighting to believe he's forgiven, to experience that forgiveness. Thoughts of his sin keep returning. The consequences of his sin haven't changed. So he makes this commitment in verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. He doesn't say, God, forgive me, and then just move on. That's what we, some of us want to do. Sometimes when, when our kids are, are, or when we are a kid, we're asking forgiveness. Just, would you forgive me? Okay, quick. And we just want to get it over with. No, 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 no. That's not how God wants us to view forgiveness. Forgiveness is a serious transaction. And the psalmist wants to experience forgiveness. That's because the experience of forgiveness doesn't always come immediately. I regularly talk to Christians who struggle to believe that God has forgiven them. They know God's forgiven them, but they're not enjoying it. They're not living in the good of it. They know Jesus bore their sins in his body on the tree, but they don't feel forgiven. Sometimes it just might feel like God is distant or that he's displeased. That might be some of you in this room. It might be that nothing's changing. Well, that's because being forgiven by God is more than simply finding out that we're not going to be punished and we can go free. That's more. Forgiveness is more than that. Just getting a a, a get out of jail free card. Okay, not in jail anymore. Okay, good. Forgiveness is more than that. Forgiveness is about a relationship. And those who are forgiven want that relationship restored. It involves a specific kind of waiting. It's a focused waiting. He says, I wait for the Lord. Not just waiting, twiddling his thumbs. He's waiting for the Lord. James Boyce, a pastor who's gone to be with the Lord, said this, he's waiting for God himself. Notice that forgiveness does not depend on his feeling forgiven. He is forgiven whether he feels it or not because he's asked God for it and God has promised to forgive. Now he wants the intimacy with God that should and will follow and he's waiting for it. So it's a focused waiting. It's a diligent waiting. In his word, I hope. In his word, I hope. Waiting includes using the means that God has given us for a greater assurance of his forgiveness, meaning his word. He might have been hoping in words like this from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This is when Moses asked God to reveal his glory, and God said, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. And when God passed before Moses, it says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
He might have been thinking about words like that, putting his hope in words like that. As Christians, on this side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can put our hope in words like this, Colossians 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. All. I love that word. All. So waiting isn't laziness. It's diligent. We meditate on God's promises by reading His Word, memorizing His Word, joining together with God's people on Sunday mornings, gathering for fellowship, Bible memorization, prayer. That's what waiting on the Lord looks like. It's diligent. And then it's expectant. We expect it to result in something. Verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. But is that like a, a mistake there? He just repeats the line? No. In Hebrew, and in a number of languages, actually, when you repeat a phrase or a word, it's a way of giving emphasis to it, added weight to it. So it's like coming up to Christmas. If, you, if someone said, are you, are you waiting for Christmas? If you just said, yeah, I'm waiting for Christmas, that'd be one way. But you could say, yes, I'm waiting for Christmas. Yes, I'm waiting for Christmas! That would give intensity to it. Well, that's what's happening here. He's waiting for the morning. He's still in the darkness, but he knows the morning will come. And two things we need to realize in this waiting. One is you can't rush it. You can't can't force it. You can't make it happen faster than God says it's going to happen. The second thing to remember is the morning's going to come. The sun's going to rise. The darkness will lift. This winter, it'll be over. Spring will come. Flowers will bloom again. That's what we know. Do past or present sins continue to weigh you down? Do they plague you? Do they whisper to you? Do they sometimes shout to you? You're not really forgiven for those. Do you think you have any right to come before God with anything? You should be as far away as you can be. Do you really think God's going to do good things for you? My daughter, uh, Brittany, wrote a number of songs. She's written a number of songs for those who are suffering. And one of the lines, one of the songs begins, uh, Do thoughts of a meager God meet you? That line has ministered to me so many times. Because I think my thoughts of God are pretty meager sometimes. A lot of times. I don't think it's very good. Because our sins can be so big. And we don't think he's that forgiving. Brothers and sisters, he's that forgiving. Wait on the Lord. You'll see the goodness of the Lord. Maybe not in your timing, but you certainly will see it. And one day, for eternity. All this commitment to wait on the Lord leads to the final section, verses 7 and 8. Confidence. Confidence. The psalmist doesn't want to keep the good news of forgiveness to himself. He wants everyone to know about it. So he says, oh, Israel, we're God's people. Hope in the Lord. This is what I found out. For with the Lord is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. Here's what we need to hear in that. He's not saying, when you feel bad about yourself, do more. Hope in your tears. Hope in your repentance. Hope in your self-pity. Hope in your accomplishments. 
Hope in your promises. That's what he's saying don't do. He's saying hope in the Lord. The ground of our encouragement is this. With the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. And you might know that that word for steadfast love is chesed. It's a Hebrew word that is grounded. It's God's love. It's his committed and unchanging love based not on the qualities of the one he's loving, but on the nature of the one who is the lover. It doesn't change based on who we are. It's unchanging because of who God is. His steadfast love, his chesed, is bound, grounded in his unchanging character. He can't lie. He never breaks a promise, and he's faithful forever. So with the Lord, there's steadfast love, and there's plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. I love that. Plentiful redemption. It's not just a little bit of redemption. It's plentiful redemption. You can't even express it well enough. I mean, I'm a big guy, so I can do better than some of you. But it's plentiful redemption. And you know what? We can see that much better than the psalmist can. Because we know how God sent it. We know how God brought it. The Jews, at the time this psalm was written would be bringing sacrifices over and over and over and again to the temple. We don't do that anymore because one sacrifice has been provided that will never be provided again. Never be provided again. And we're not going to improve upon it. Our prayers don't improve upon it. Our efforts don't improve upon it. Our promises don't improve upon it. Our experiences don't improve upon it. Nothing can improve upon it. It's that good. And we'll be spending eternity thanking God that before we were even born... Before anything was even created, God had determined that Jesus was going to come, leave his throne in glory, where he was surrounded by glorious hallelujahs and praises and exaltation and fellowship with his Father and the Spirit. He left it, Jesus did, so he could come and wear this. What's this? This is our skin. He could wear our flesh. He could come... Enter the world into a feeding trough, not a sterile feeding trough, so that he could grow up, never disobey, never give in to temptation. Why? So that he would have no sins to die for, so that he could take our sins upon himself, all the sins that we deserve to be punished for, all the sins that we would have no way to be forgiven for had not someone else died in our place, taken our punishment, been separated from God for our sake so that we could forever be joined to God as his precious sons and daughters. That's why Jesus came. He received that punishment, rose from the dead, ascended to his Father's right hand, where he now intercedes for us until that day we see him face to face. That's what forgiveness means. It is the heart of meaning in this universe. If there is no forgiveness, we have no future. Coming down the final stretch. This is, another, this is a quote from John Owen's commentary. This is the great mystery of the gospel in the blood of Christ. That those who sin every day should have peace with God all their days. (laughs) 
How plentiful is God's redemption? Well, it's plentiful enough not only to cover my sins, but the sins of my family, the sins of those who trust in him in my lifetime, the sins of a thousand generations before us and after us. It's sufficient to cover the sins of everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior. And if that's not you, I plead with you to trust, to turn from trusting in what you can do, to turn from relying on your abilities, on your promises, on your good works, and trust that Jesus alone can pay for your sins and believe that with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption even for you. But if you have trusted in Jesus Christ and found forgiveness in him, we can say together in verse 8, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Because that verse applies to you. Iniquities refers not only to our sins, but to all the effects of our sins, the troubles and trials and difficulties, because those who hope in God for forgiveness now can anticipate the day when sin and all its effects will be no more. And just as the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God's people waited for the coming of the Messiah, we wait for the coming of the Messiah again, when, as we sang earlier, that day when all will be made right, all will be made right. Brothers and sisters, our forgiveness assures us that that day is going to come. It is going to come. So let's live in the good of it. With the Lord there is forgiveness, with the Lord is steadfast love, and with the Lord is plentiful redemption. That is the best news we'll hear at the beginning of 2018 or any other year. So trust Him. Wait for Him. He will never, ever fail you. Father, thank you for your mercy towards us in Jesus that we have no reason to doubt your word and no reason to doubt your son, no reason to doubt your heart. May we live in the full enjoyment of all that you have provided for us in Jesus Christ. We find forgiveness in his atoning death and resurrection. And we thank you that we can enjoy that now and look forward to an eternity where the effects of sin are no more. And we only know your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.